Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. In these black Bibles, that's page 824. Matthew chapter 19 is the chapter to which we're focusing on at this time in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. I mentioned last week that when chapter 19 begins, there's some conversation about divorce that begins in verse 3. And so we addressed verses 3 to 9 uh, on the divorce topic, and that that was part 1. So this week is part 2. And if you missed last week, we do record the messages online. You can go back and catch up to part 1 to helpfully make sense of the whole. What we're about to read is going to be very much connected to uh, the previous text and message. So I'm going to read all of it, um, starting in verse 3, and then go all the way through verse 15. But before I read, I think sometimes it's helpful for me to give you big ideas or simple summary statements, so then as we read them, you can say, oh, okay, I see where you're going there. If you were to take um, not just our text, but a big idea of our text and the entire chapter of Matthew, I started to notice in my studies uh, something come together. And so look with me just real quickly at a few of these texts. Um, Look at the end of our section in verse 12. And Jesus says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then look at verse 14. But Jesus said, little children, come to me and do not hinder them For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Children coming, Jesus says, let them come. Then, I want you to look down at the rich young ruler, the rich young man story. And even though that's not our text for today, I just want you to show you a theme throughout this chapter. And then you'll notice that in verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Here's the thread I want to tie in all of these stories, which on the surface, it it did not come right away. What, What does divorce, eunuchs, little children coming to Jesus, and a rich man asking Jesus a question about salvation, why are they together? And by the way, if you're new to reading the Bible, I believe that Matthew has collected and edited these stories on purpose in an intentional way. So this isn't a random question. I think this is an essential question to understand the purpose of this book, which is what we're studying. So here's your big idea. I think that Matthew is trying to communicate through Jesus here that we need to have room to let Jesus into our lives. We need to let him enter in. We need to make space for Jesus. Which, which of those do you like better in terms of the wording? 
You write that down. You remember that in your head. We need to make room for Jesus. We need to make space for Jesus in our heart, in our life. And so I think because it's Christmas time, it should remind us of the familiar story in Luke chapter 2, shouldn't it? Here's Mary and Joseph. Mary's pregnant. They're betrothed together. Not officially married, but mostly legally married. They're in a town called Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem, the big capital, temple, central, big city. But they're in kind of a smaller backwoods town where Joseph's family's from. And as sometimes the story goes, or as it's often portrayed, Mary and Joseph are doing what? Frantically looking for a place. Can we stay here? Can we stay with you? They're running around. Oh, help us, help us, help us. And then it says that they finally found a feeding trough for Jesus when he was born because there was no place for him. And then most of you are familiar with the word inn as if there was no room in a hotel. And I've previously preached and told you, I think that's probably a bad way to read the story. Uh, It's probably like there's no guest rooms available because of the census. There's a lot of people. But here's the point. Whether it's he's born in a stable or he's born in a garage of a house, which is my personal preference of the way to read that story. Jesus was born in like the garage of a house where the animals stayed. Like a living quarters, but mostly for animals. Here's the point Luke is telling you. There was no room. There was no room for Jesus. When God comes, a lot of times he gets pushed aside. When God comes to you, God gets pushed aside. And I'm asking you, will you, this Christmas, will you today, will you make room for Jesus? Because I think the thread through these passages is about making room. In fact, look one more time at that verse in verse 12. Let the one who is able, and then it's translated in English, let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. And that phrase is actually, Make room. Make room for this teaching. My wife and I were actually talking about this concept. It's Christmas season. We're talking about gifts we're going to get for our kids. Last night we were talking about making room in our house for like, if we get that present, then like, where's it going to go? We don't have room for it in our house. And like, I'm very much trying to like pursue at times like minimalism and simplicity and not have a whole bunch of stuff. It's like, oh, Christmas is the worst for this, right? Like, we're just going to get more stuff. Where are we going to find room for these presents? And the solution we came up with was like, we'll have to get rid of stuff. So you're going to have to get rid of some stuff to make room for this teaching. You're going to have to get rid of some things. You're going to have to replace some things in your heart and in your life to make room for Jesus and what he's calling to you in this text. Are you ready for that? I hope you are. Let's read the text, starting in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, 
Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can make room. Receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to make room for this teaching make room for it. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he went away. Big idea? Make room for not only this teaching in your head, which I think there will need to be like categories of thoughts. You know, I was saying, if we're going to make room for that toy, we're going to have to take that toy out and then put that one in place. I want that to happen in your minds today. There's going to be ideas or thoughts that you have about divorced women, single people, and children that you might need to pull out of your brain, throw it in the garbage, and put new ones in. Make room for that. That's one goal. There's also the very goal of, I don't want us to think about this mentally and intellectually as an exercise. You will make room for Jesus in your heart and life by making room for divorced women, single men or women, and children. If you're trying to guess, that's the outline of what we're going to follow here. Divorced women, singles, or eunuchs, to be more precise. And lastly, children. Let's look at them one at a time. That's the way the text unfolds. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, who's him? Answer the question. Who's him? Jesus. Okay? How do we know that? Because it's a story that's being told, and we're in the middle of it. Remember, this is what? Part two. Part one was last week. It ended with verse nine. Jesus just said something in verse nine. He said, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Then the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. There's two ways to read this passage of scripture. I'm going to lean a little bit right now, but it's a little fresh. I just learned this this week. I'd never heard of this reading. The first way you could read it is the majority position. This is the way you'll find in most Bible scholars and pastors when you come across this Bible passage. The first way to read it is that the men that Jesus is talking to in this passage are sexist, misogynistic, abusive, have a low view of women. They marry and divorce flippantly for any reason. 
She doesn't look good anymore. She burned my dinner. I don't want her. I'm a man. I've got power. I've got money. She's got nothing. And I'm going to use and abuse her for my own personal well-being, pleasures, happiness. Anybody feeling like, I don't like that? Good. Jesus doesn't either. Which is why he comes back with a very stern teaching and says, listen, from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, marriage was supposed to be permanent. From the beginning, it was supposed to be like welders welding two metals together. It was supposed to be like glue. It was supposed to be like a scale on an animal's skin, the literal language used in Genesis 2, of being stuck and hard to peel off. That's what marriage was supposed to be. And you guys have so lowered the bar by having these controversies. In fact, you think that Moses has even commanded you that when a woman has done something indecent, that you can get a divorce anytime you want. How crazy is that? And he says that there might be exceptions where cases of porneia, where someone might be able to commit a, a divorce, do a divorce. But pretty much, anytime these guys are getting divorced and remarrying, they're just committing adultery. They're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. That's how Jesus teaches this. And as we talked about last week in verse 9, there's a lot of debate over the word porneia, and there's a lot of discussion. And here's my just quick pastoral comment. If you would like to know whether or not your divorce, if you've been divorced, or if the desire you have for a divorce is biblical grounds for divorce, then you should talk with a pastor. I think every single divorce case is a case-by-case -case basis, and we have instructions like this in the Bible. We have more of them in 1 Corinthians 7, and it would be way too confusing and complex and a whole nother teaching with real kind of nuance and depth to try and lay things out. We do have a position paper on this that we can send you that our elders have written out as guidelines that we use for this. But I think that you should talk with someone. I think that each person's case should be handled individually. And that's what I think that you should do if you're wondering, should I get a divorce? Should my friend get a divorce? Did I get a divorce in the wrong way? Did I commit adultery by getting remarried? Big, 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 big questions. Shouldn't be looked past. Should be addressed. But I think more on a case-by-case -case basis. Because verse 10 is often read, as I said, as these disciples, not Pharisees. Remember who asked the question in verse 3? Pharisees. Jewish leaders, now followers of Jesus, say, and this is the first way to read it, well, if that's the case, we better never get married in the first place. That's, that's the one way to read it. Showing the misogynistic, sexist culture of the day that even the disciples held on to, that it so influenced their view of like, well, if I can't get a divorce whenever I want and remarry anybody, then that's dumb. I might as well just stay single and sleep around like many people are doing today, actually. A second way to read this text is that the word for case has maybe tipped our reading in the wrong direction. And the word case is the same word used for cause in verse 3. So look at verse 3. Can someone get a divorce for any cause? Now, ladies and gentlemen, Notice the question. 
can someone divorce their wife? Now, now why is it wife and not can a woman divorce their husband? Because women hardly ever pursued a divorce. Because again, they were not seen as equal to men in the time of the Bible. But here's what I believe Jesus is doing in light of the Old Testament and in light of what he's saying here is the second way to read this in verse 10 is if that is the charge made against the man in verse 9. So here's here's the, the way you could translate this. If such is the charge, the accusation made against the man, what man? How did we answer the question about who the disciples are talking to? What did we do? We said, well, it's Jesus because of what he just said in verse 9. So how do we know what man they're talking about? If this is the charge, the accusation made against the man, what man are they talking about? We'll look at verse 9 again. Whoever divorces his wife. The man who divorces his wife. So the disciples think, they say, all right, let me make sure I'm understanding this, Jesus. You're saying that if someone divorces their wife, except for maybe sexual immorality, pornea, again, whatever that might mean, but more often than not, they're committing adultery and they get remarried. If that's the charge, they they should not get remarried. Verse 9 leads to verse 10. That the marriage that's being referenced there isn't the first marriage. Well, we should never have gotten married in the first place. But that the remarriage for maybe they shouldn't get remarried then if they're going to commit adultery. And Jesus is like, yup, that's right. You get it. You're tracking with me. Which is why he says what he does in the next few verses. Okay, that's your options. I told you I'm leaning more toward option two. But I believe... The point of verse 10 and the whole passage that is sometimes very much overlooked is that Jesus is protecting women. He is protecting women from being divorced flippantly and having no status in society and being divorced women that have already been with a man, not a virgin, seen as like not just second class because they're a woman, but a divorced woman. What is the chances of that woman having any upward mobility, any chance, any rights or dignity? Very, very small. So by raising the standard back to Genesis chapter 2, by telling them that, look, there are only few exceptions that in general we need to commit to our marriages. He is protecting women. Why do I say it like that? Because... These passages are sometimes used to keep women in abusive marriages. That just seems to go against the very spirit of what Jesus is doing. Some of you might remember in part one of this, that all of this conversation is being centered around a a conversation in Deuteronomy 24. And if you go back and read Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4, you'll know that these conversations about divorce from Deuteronomy are about, listen, divorce is getting so out of control, the hardness of your heart is so bad that Moses tried to put some guardrails around it because people were divorcing and then remarrying and then trying to go back and get that person. He's like, no, 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 we've got to get some guardrails around this. But this was not the original idea. So I think Deuteronomy 24 protects women. I think Jesus is saying that you're missing the very heart of Deuteronomy 24. I think Jesus is saying that we need to make sure that we see women as made in God's image 
and that we need to not see them as second class. We need to make room for them. And we don't want to have all these divorced women all over the place because men have just treated them like property. That's what I think Jesus is doing in his time. So how does this apply to our time? Some of you might be divorced. Some of you feel like as you come into a church and you hear teachings like this, I mean, this is Jesus. This is not my opinion on the matter. This is Jesus. We're reading it. He has a high standard. And you might think, I got divorced for the wrong reason. Or maybe you didn't get divorced for the wrong reason. Maybe you had biblical grounds for divorce. Maybe somebody abandoned you or left you. Either way, divorce comes with this giant D sometimes on people's foreheads. Like the scarlet letter of adultery, but rather like, oh, I just don't fit into a church where there's all these married people everywhere. Do you get how the application for us is, can we make room in our church? Can you make space in your head to rethink the way you think about divorced people? If Jesus is going to this extent to protect and preserve women in relationships, maybe one of the things we need to do as a church is to make sure that we create space for women and men who have been divorced, even if it was 10 years ago or five months ago, and to tell them that the gospel is about people who are in broken situations and that there is hope and there is reconciliation and there is restoration and that there is forgiveness. Can we make space at Embassy for that? Can we make space in our hearts? Could I be a pastor? This would be the longing. This is the prayer that I would never hear a divorced person say, I just don't feel like I fit in in this church. Let's make room in our minds and our hearts to follow the spirit of Jesus here and especially toward those who are seen as more vulnerable and hurting and broken. So friend, think about what that might look like in your life if you're divorced. Can you receive Jesus in your heart? Can you receive his forgiveness? Can you see that his love is to help those who are vulnerable and weak? Those who are in difficult circumstances? If you're not divorced, if you're single, you're married. You think, this doesn't apply to me. It does. We're a church. We're a church. We need to create the culture together. I can't just preach this. We need to be these kind of people. So will we? Think about how that applies to your life, the way you view the different people in this church, in this community. And that's point number one. Let us make room for Jesus by making room for people that are like divorced women. The very, Jesus, the very people Jesus is trying to protect with his commandments. The very people that Moses was trying to protect in Deuteronomy 24. And that's number one. Number two. Let's make room for Jesus by making room for those who are eunuchs or we could broaden it out further for those who are single. In verse 11, he says, But he said to them, being the disciples, Jesus responds to the disciples and said, Not everyone's going to be able to receive this. Not everyone's going to be able to make room for this teaching. But only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. 
And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. I think the way this passage flows is either one way or another. You take it option one or option two, the, the preceding verses read the, somewhat the same. Option one is, well, what's the point in getting married? And then Jesus responds with talking about eunuchs. And if you're like, help me out, Phil. What's a eunuch? Somebody who is more often times a male has been castrated. And Jesus gives three different categories for that. Maybe they've had their male organs removed from someone. Maybe they were born. Maybe they were intersex. And so they, they're not clearly male or female. And so they can't have children. They, they can't get married so maybe because of a birth defect, maybe because of a king. This is very common, by the way, if some of you are like, this is getting really weird. It's like, welcome to the first century. In the Roman world, kings and rulers did not want their servants to have intimate physical relations with their wives. And they'd have multiple wives. And so to prevent them from ever having any kind of physical intimacy with their servants and wives or whatever, they would make sure that would never physically be possible. And they cut those organs off. So that's the category. And then there's the category of those that were just born that way. And then Jesus adds, and then there's some that are going to choose to be this way. And so then there's the debate. Does he mean cut off an organ? Well, in the same way, does he mean cut off your hand or gouge out your eye in Matthew 5? Or earlier in Matthew 18, and almost anybody thinks probably not. Um, more than likely, Jesus means they're deliberately choosing to be single for the sake of the kingdom. So you've got three categories then. And that's on the heels of either option one, why ever get married in the first place? And Jesus responds this way with the eunuch talk. Or option two, then they probably shouldn't get remarried. If they divorce their wife and they don't have good grounds, then they're committing adultery. They, they're just going to have to remain single the rest of their life. Do you see that the end goal or the end line in verse 10 is that following Jesus' teaching is going to lead to a lot of people that have got to make the decision, I may never be married again. So let's, let's think about this. Why does Jesus say this? What, what's he saying and, and how does this have to do with us? You know, I think it's extremely relevant. In fact, I think this might be one of the most powerful, provocative, timely words from Jesus about gender, about marriage, about singleness that we need to hear at this point of our cultural moment that we live in right now. I really can't think of a better word from Jesus on the issue of sexuality and marriage and singleness than this word right here. Jesus is affirming singleness in this text. He is affirming that some people will remain single their whole life for the sake of the kingdom of God, whether that's because they were divorced or did a divorce and they're going to remain single the rest of their life, or whether it's because they've just been single their whole lives. They made themselves a eunuch because of their choice to have no more children for the rest of their lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. Do you see the implications for this? I mean, let's just take the first one, the first level of some people will be eunuchs because of a choice, because they choose to be single. Do you have room for that? 
Do you have room in your brain that marriage is not ultimate on the earth? Church people. Let me ask that again because church people struggle with this the most. Church people talk about the goodness of marriage. Church people get married. People get married in church. So then, can we have room in our brains that singleness is prized and affirmed and upheld by Jesus here in this text as a good choice? Really? Jesus was single. He lived his entire life single. Let that sink in. He never once had intimate, physical, sexual relations with a woman, ever. He never once had a lustful thought. Remained celibate and single. Celibate's kind of the old-fashioned King James word for staying single the rest of your life. Now, I want to make a caveat here. This is extremely important. The kind of singleness we're talking about is not the kind of singleness that I quickly alluded to earlier. Well, I might as well remain unmarried and sleep around. No, 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 no. Single and celibate. Single and free from sexual relations. Single and I'm not going to have any physical intimacy with the opposite sex. That's the singleness Jesus is talking about. He's talking about eunuchs. Eunuchs don't even have the body part to do the intimate relations. So he's talking rather extreme here so that you get the point. They're never going to have that kind of relationship with a woman ever again. And he's saying some people choose that for the kingdom. Get my point? This is timely. This is helpful. Married friends, do you look down on singles? Do you always ask them as one of the first or second questions, so are you married? Are you dating anyone? As if like they need to get married. Maybe they're going to be single. Why does singleness need to seem like second class? Like, well, one day you'll get real mature and married. And then here's, here's the crazy thing. How many married people do I talk to that like seem like they just want to be single again? And then how many single people do I talk to that are like, man, when could I get married? It's like, hmm, maybe the problem is not solved by marriage. Maybe that's not the solution. Maybe some of you that are feeling lonely right now, the longing in your heart is, I'm longing so badly to be with someone, and that will be fulfilled by marriage. And then you get to know married people, and then you realize the loneliness still exists. Marriage doesn't solve that loneliness problem. Have you guys ever seen Zoolander? Zoolander is not top-notch film quality. The premise of the movie, if you've never seen it, is that the more beautiful you look, the more stupid you are. Some of you might like that principle. In it, you have these male models, and there's a whole bunch that's probably not worth sharing, but in one scene of the movie, one of the key actors is this top-notch model, he's extremely beautiful, which means he's extremely slow and dim-witted. And he is having a building, an entire school of models that are being made on his behalf. Like in honor of him, like the building and school is going to be dedicated to this guy. And so there's an unveiling that goes where they're going to show him the replica of the building that is going to be made in the future. And so these are like the, the architectural plans for the building. And so this very 
slow, dim-witted model looks, and he is like flipping out. He's like, the people, they're never going to fit in these buildings. It's too little. It's like a little Lego size, and it's going to need to be bigger. Do you think that people are going to be able to fit inside of here and have classes and whatever else? Like, no. And what a perfect illustration of what people are doing with marriage, whether you're married or single. You're looking at the little miniature model that is temporary and thinking, that's it. That's the end goal. You're like the Zoolander actor who's like, this is never going to work. How are people going to do classes in this little small Lego-sized building? Do Do you see marriage? It's momentary. It's temporary. It's not permanent. It never was meant to be. It is a model, it is a picture pointing us forward. So when single people choose to be single, they are not foregoing intimacy. They are not saying, I will therefore never be able to be intimate. Well, a certain physical kind, but not intimacy in general. Marital physical intimacy is pointing to a deeper reality between God and humans and between humans loving one another in a way that is appropriate and platonic and, and, and not sexual. And that's the real heart of it at the, at the first place. So to forego that physical act is not to give up on what God created the whole thing to point to. That's to do what our culture does every single day, which is make the model and the expression of that model the end goal. So many people can't receive this teaching. They don't have room in their brains or their hearts because our sexually saturated culture says, you just can't even be a human if you have got to give up your sexuality. And that's to miss the whole point of physical marital intimacy in the first place. Wow, what a hard teaching. That's what Jesus says. Not everybody's going to be able to receive this. How are you doing? You making room for this? You making room in your brain that we, whether we're single or we're married, we need to make room for the goodness of that stage of life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's a famous passage that we've been alluding to and we read it last week, that whatever stage you find yourself in, it is a gift. Read the text more carefully. So many people think, this is a myth about singleness. Well, I don't have the calling. I, I burn with passion. I don't have the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness is, are you single right now? You got the gift. Are you married right now? Well, then you got the gift of marriage. And some of you need to think about this teaching because some of you are married right now and think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. Some of you are going to be single again. Your spouse will pass. I heard a story this week as I was prepping for this where a guy was sharing that his grandfather and his wife, his grandfather and his grandmother, they had 50 years of marriage. And he's like in like the 110 years old now, but because she passed first, he's had almost more singleness in his older age after being married than he's had in his married life. And he was married for 50 years. I mean, that'd be awesome if we could have a long, full life like that, but... What a sobering reminder for several of you that are married that you think, yeah, I don't really need this singleness talk. Really? Are you so sure that you're going to remain married the rest of your physical life on earth? 
Make room for this teaching. Make room for the idea that singleness is not a second half unfulfilled life. That is blasphemy against the Son of God who lived on this earth as the fullest human being that has ever walked this earth. I have come to give life and life to the full. Did anybody have a more full, rich, God-filled, purpose-driven, excellent life than Jesus? Can you think of anyone? You know anybody? You know anybody that's single? Anybody that's married in your life that has a more full and enriching life than what you read about in Jesus? So don't we dare look at singleness and say, Well, that's kind of a second-class, half-fulfilled life. True life has been having sons and daughters. Do you know why Grace read that text for us in Isaiah 56? Because I think Jesus is right along with Isaiah 56. There will be eunuchs. And because they have been faithful to God, they will have something better than sons and daughters. Make room for that. How many longing mothers, how many longing believers are longing for more family, a family, and they can't make room for Isaiah 56? It's hard. It's really hard. There is something better than having children. There is something that lasts beyond our physical children. And this is the beauty of the church. That the church could be a place where single and married, divorced and widowed, children all are a part of the kingdom. That we don't reject them and stiff arm them and say, well, once you get married, once you have children, the kingdom, Jesus is putting an upside down flavor yet again on the kingdom. So what have we seen so far? He's protecting vulnerable women who are going to be hopeless and divorced by teaching the standard of God's original intention and saying, make room for this teaching so that we do not have this plethora of women. So he's protecting women. We need to do that as well. Secondly, he's making room for people who are single, whether by choice, whether by birth, or whether by force. And before we move on to our last point, I think in part of our timeliness of this word, I want you to consider the fact that Jesus lays out those three principles, and then we'll move on to the last one. Think about those three principles. There are people who are single, eunuch-like, because they were made that way because of the way they were born, because of something that just they they couldn't control. Then there's people because of the pressure of society. It forced them. They felt like they had no other option, and physically, literally, they didn't. They were enslaved to this status. And lastly, there are those who choose to be eunuchs. For the sake of the kingdom. Now think about modern conversations about transgender, gender dysphoria, 
about same-sex attraction and think, aren't those categories vaguely familiar? That some people, all they've ever known is being born a certain way, whether by physical defect or by emotional, psychological, that's all I've ever desired or known. Then there's people that because of society, maybe the lack of a father, maybe because of their upbringing, maybe because everybody's always just told them that that's who they are or what they're going to be. And then there's people that just choose to be eunuchs. And Jesus is affirming all three of those categories in this text. Affirming them in the sense that there is a way to live in the kingdom if you're in any three of those. And I think that there's a lot of complexity to that. I'm sure, like, don't you have hundreds and thousands of questions that then arise? Like, how does this work and what does this look like? But how tight is your view of how all this should work? How black and white are you on this? Do you have any space for the fact that somebody might be like, that's all I've ever known. I don't know what to do with this. Can we give them space to want to follow Jesus and figure out what that looks like? Or is it going to be like, no, you're out. Stiff arm to you. It seems to me that as we look at these texts and we look at the whole of Jesus' teaching, he wants to continually include those who would be rejected, especially by Christians and churches. I feel like that's something we might want to consider. Might there be people that feel rejected and judged and feel like the church wants nothing to do with me because of gender issues, sexual attraction, and those kind of things, and we need to make space for them, space to walk with them. There are lots of people who really do love Jesus and are just trying to make sense, and they're confused, or they're struggling, or they're just not sure, and I think that it's really, really important that we give them room, because I think Jesus would. So last and finally, children. Verse 13, then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. It's customary in Jesus' time that rabbis, Jesus was a rabbi, that they would get blessings from uh, they would bring children to rabbis to get blessings. It seems like that's what's going on here. And um, the children were brought to Jesus. We don't know who it was. It doesn't say their parents. It says these people. The disciples, though, were rebuking them and being like, get them out of here, which is part of the theme. There's no room for little children to come. And it's the same phrase we were looking at. If you just turn your Bibles over a page to Matthew 18, You'll notice that when there's a discussion about who's going to be the greatest in verse 1, Jesus tells them in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So humble yourself like a little child, and then you will be the greatest. So we're still on that theme here. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. I have room for children. I prioritize little children. And if you remember in our Matthew 18 teaching, little children were not prioritized. Little children were not seen as valuable, as dignified, as people of having any kind of status in society. And you might wonder, like, oh, that's kind of mean and rude. 
children died a lot. Like, you need to remember that it wasn't too long ago in terms of modern advancements that like one of the number one causes of death was like a, a woman giving birth to a child. Like that happened constantly, all the time. Stories of it all the time. So if you're a little child, you're like, well, we'll see if they live. We'll see how long they make it. It's kind of a hard heart, right? And it seems strange for us to think about that way, but you need to remember the world that they're living in. And children were just seen as like, well, maybe they'll grow up. I mean, literally, maybe. They might die. You get a cough, you get a cold. Why do we do flu shots? Why do people do these vaccines and stuff? To protect the weak children and elderly folks. It's not for you necessarily. It's to protect the other people that when they get sick, they might pass because their immune systems aren't strong. So you get a little cold, you get a flu, you get some sort of disease or whatever, and you're a little child, you die. You get a fever. So that's the context to which Jesus is having all these people look down on little children, and he says, no, I got room for them. Let them come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. The people that no one else views as valuable. Jesus has room for. Jesus has room for little children. Do you? And whoever's like a little child, whoever is seen as less valuable, who might that be in your life? Who might that be this Christmas season? Who might you need to literally make room at your dinner table so that a child, a single or divorced person might be able to join you and say, there's room in this home and in their family for people like this. And when I say it that way, I want to make sure it's really clear. I don't think that it's like, well, the women and the children and the singles, they're the, the ones to be pitied and, and, you know, the married and those, like, we, we've got our act together and, and things are good with us. The spirit of this message should be, we need singles. Married people need you singles to give us perspective, to give us insight, to be around the table, not because, oh, pity you, you have nobody to go to and be lonely. I mean, sure, there's maybe some element of that, but that's, that's not what I'm trying to say. Because we need each other. We need to be reminded, many of us who are married, I might be single in a couple decades or a couple years, depending on how old you are or whatever might happen. And all of us need to be reminded that singleness is our future. All of us need to remember that being like little children is our future. When we open up the word next week, in Matthew chapter 19 again, we're going to see a rich man who's asked to give up everything. And he says, no, I still want all of it. And he leaves sad, and then Jesus says, man, it's hard, isn't it? When you've got a lot on this earth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples say, we've left everything to follow you. I think one of the reasons they said that is because of Matthew 19's previous text. The one we've been looking at. Some of them maybe have left, it says right here, children. They've left the opportunity of having more children to follow Jesus. Many of them picked up their jobs and decided, I'm not even married yet, and I'm going to be single 
and I'm going to follow this guy Jesus around for these next so many years. And they're like, we left everything. We left everything that the world would prize to be with you, Jesus. And if you come back next week, you'll see Jesus say, it's worth it. So is it worth it for you? And do you have room for Jesus in your heart? Or is it crowded? Is it overcrowded with stuff and other worldly things? The Bible would ask you right now to change your thinking, replace and put in a new concept that Jesus would be enough. Because the single man became the married man. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and waits for his bride, the church. We will be single for all of eternity, but we will be married because we will be with him. Contentment in both marriage and singleness will come when Jesus is enough. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for this word, even though it is really hard. We thank you that Jesus does not shy away from hard sayings or hard teachings and just gives us what we want to hear. So we want to thank you for this word. We want to ask that you would speak to us this word that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, that each of us would find ourselves in a situation, divorced, single, married, a child, and that we would realize that whatever longing is in our heart, it is ultimately a longing for Christ. That our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in you, God. So awaken us. Help us make space in our mind, in our heart, in our church for these concepts so that the kingdom of God could be here on earth in such beauty and in such diversity. I pray, God, that this Christmas we would not see Jesus lying in a manger in our house, but we would see Jesus close to our chest, held tight, in the best possible place, in the greatest possible priority, that we would make room for him and not let him be pushed to the side. I pray, God, that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.